Do you seek the freedom to pursue greater meaning and purpose in your life? Is there something that you're passionate about that you'd like to support by giving time, talent, or money? Do you seek a level of financial freedom to live an ideal life as you uniquely define it? Welcome to the Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier, a show dedicated to helping you gain the confidence and freedom to lead a life of personal significance and help you get your actions and resources in alignment with what matters most. Welcome to the Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier. My name is Mike Bernard. I am your host. Thanks for being with us. Like Jeff, I'm a certified financial planner. This show is all about helping you discover what matters most and then helping you get your actions and resources in alignment with your goals. We combine excellence in wealth management with the pursuit of meaning and purpose in your life. Jeff Bernier is the founder, president, and chief investment officer of Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, a wealth management firm in Alpharetta, Georgia, a suburb in the greater Atlanta area. Well, Jeff, fall is here. That's fall baseball, although it didn't work out <laughs> quite nope. the way nope. Atlanta really wanted it to be. But I know you hosted my uh, my business partner, Kevin Corhorn, for the dogs beating up the Irish. Well, I don't know that we beat them up. We, sque- we squeaked right out. Uh, Notre Dame played really well, and uh, George was really lucky to, to get out of there with a win. Well, all right. Now, both of, both of our teams need to somehow find a different path to the college football playoff. Well, Maybe we'll we see. see we hope. All right. So what's on the agenda today? Well, you know, Mike. Something I say frequently and and believe is that over a lifetime of investing, investor behavior can do more to influence the success or failure of an investment strategy than the investments themselves. And for this reason, I put behavioral investment counseling and financial planning really at the top of the list on those areas where we truly add value to clients. And so we spend some time researching and reading and trying to learn about how to help clients invest rashly instead of emotionally. And I'm really excited today that I can bring a true expert in the field of behavioral investing to the audience today. So our guest today is Dr. Daniel Crosby. Dr. Daniel Crosby is a psychologist and a behavioral finance expert. He helps organizations understand the intersection of mind and markets. He's written some really phenomenal books. We'll talk about them today. The first one was called Personal Benchmark, Integrating Behavioral Finance and in Investment Management, and was actually a New York Times bestseller. His second book, The Laws of Wealth, which was the first one that I read, was named the best investment book of 2017. And his most recent book is The Behavioral Investor. And it's all about taking a look at how sociology, psychology, neurology all impact the investment decision-making process. But what's really important about the book, he brings together great research, but they're really in some really readable stories that are really actionable. So anyway, welcome, Dr. Daniel Crosby. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, well, th- well, thanks for being here. We we were talking before we went on air that uh, you are a diehard St. Louis Cardinals fan, and I, I guess condolences are in order. Um, but uh, but they sure looked good finishing off the Braves. So uh, <laughs> for, for, for one inning, they were they were magnificent. <laughs> well, it was a, it was a, it was a good run. So before we start, do you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself and your family and? and how you got involved in the study of behavioral finance. 
Yeah. So myself, I'm actually the son of a financial advisor. My dad is still in the business. And so I grew up discussing, you know, many of the things that we'll discuss today around the dinner table. Uh, I actually decided I wanted to go a different path. You know, it was on the table that I could join him in, in his practice, uh, but decided to go a, a different path. And that path led me into the world of psychology, which is, of course, a great love of mine. Um, but, you know, I found uh, along the way, I went to school to be a clinical psychologist. My PhD is in clinical psychology. Uh, but I found along the way that I preferred thinking about why people do the things they do in a business context uh, to a medical context. And so found my way, sure enough, back to my dad's world once again and, and back to combining the worlds of, of mind and markets uh, and it's been a great it's been a great little niche for me. I mean, uh, sometimes I'll meet people on airplanes who don't believe there's such a job as a financial psychologist. <laughs> but, um, I guess I'm I'm proof that there is. Yeah, yeah, very very cool. Yeah, I saw you speak at a uh, a National Association of Personal Financial Advisors conference many years ago, and started following a lot of your writing and your your prolific writer and again you've written these three phenomenal books and this last book the behavioral investor uh it, you know I, I it was one of those books that i highlighted so much of it I, I probably should have just highlighted the parts to ignore because the whole book is is in is in yellow yellow uh highlights but um tell me tell me a little bit about what you're trying to accomplish when you write a book like The Behavioral Investor? What was the what was the idea behind the book? Well, the idea behind the book is, uh, you know, as an academic, you're always looking to fill gaps in the research. And so one of the gaps that, that I saw in the research was that sort of the environmental factors around uh, financial decision-making weren't very well covered. Um, you know, there were good books around what are some of the biases we're prone to. Of course, there's some of that in The Behavioral Investor. Uh, but I wanted to look holistically at everything from how the people we surround ourselves with to what food we eat uh, to, you know, uh, genetic components, how all of these things factor into the way that we make financial decisions. So I tried to be as thorough as possible and just plug some plug some holes in the research. Yeah. And, and like I said, it is well researched. You you cite a lot of material. And that's why I say if, if I was talking to anyone who was because there's a lot of great books out there on on the subject more today than there were you know 15 years ago um and your book i believe is a really good one to read because you pull together so much good source material from other places but again make it entertaining and useful to actually apply one of the things you state in the book uh was that there's no understanding markets without understanding people and that people are the fundamental units of the market. Can you tell us what, what you mean by that? Yeah. So I give, I give an example from the history of physics where people were trying to understand um, atoms effectively and subatomic particles. Uh, and the way that they had modeled it was that uh, basically everything looked like a tiny little universe. So atoms, you know, they hypothesized the existence of atoms, but Atoms looked like a tiny solar system, and inside the tiny solar system was a tinier solar system, and it was kind of tiny solar systems all the way down. Um, and of course, it was only once we got a more accurate understanding of, of, uh, of subatomic particles that we gained the power to either, uh, you know, fuel a city, to power a city with, with atomic power, or to level a city. So our understanding of sort of the fundamental units of a discipline 
uh, are a prerequisite for us being masters of that discipline. The same thing is true of finance and the fundamental particles of finance are not, you know, it's not return on invested capital. It's not price to earnings ratios. It's people uh, because everything from from money to equities to everything in between is a is a creation and a function of the human mind. So it's only as we understand uh, the human mind and the human animal that we're able to function effectively in capital markets. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, that well, that makes sense too. I, I, I think I've said before that um, you, you know the tools that we use in markets have changed a lot, but people have people changed that much? Uh, no, <laughs> no, no, they haven't. And people change uh, very, very slowly. I spoke at an event in the in the Cayman Islands last week, and someone asked me. You know, I was talking about evolutionary psychology and and how sort of our brains and bodies came to be the way that they are. And someone said, well, does that mean uh, that we will eventually evolve in into better investors? And I said, yeah, probably one day in a couple of million years. <laughs> and so, you know, most most of us don't have time to wait. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we haven't changed that much. Yeah. What, we one of the one, years, yeah, one, yeah. What, one of the enlightening things um, that you make pretty clear in the book is that oftentimes investors do best uh, when they when they try the least, and that should be liberating. That doing less can be more profitable than doing more. Why is this so difficult? Do you think that that uh, that we're unable to do fewer, more important things? And instead, we try to do more. Well, one of the concepts that I coined in my in my second book, The Laws of Wealth, was this notion of Wall Street bizarro world which is this notion that that truths about investing tend to run contrary to truths that are that are present in other parts of our lives and that's why they're hard to grasp. And so if you think about what's required uh, of you to get smarter, you should read more books, you should attend more classes. If you want to get more athletic, you should run more miles, you should lift more weights. But then counterintuitively, if you want better returns, if you want to be a more successful investor, you should do nothing. And so elsewhere in life, getting more or doing more gets you more. Uh, but in finance and investing, doing, uh, doing nothing tends to get you the most. And there's a couple of great examples of this I give in my book. Uh, one, <clears throat> one is a study cited by uh, Jim O'Shaughnessy in his book, What Works on Wall Street?, uh, that was a, a study done by a major financial retailer that found that their best form best performing accounts were of people who had died or <laughs> forgotten that they had an account. And so it's inspiring. <laughs> right. So there there dear less the dear listeners, there is the story. There's the the secret. Just forget about your money and, and go about your life. Yeah. Yeah. Well and and again, I, it's really difficult to do when you've got 24-7 media trying to get you to do something. That's right. Or at least get an eyeball. I don't know if they want you to do something, but they want you to watch like yeah. there's something really important. Um, you know, many years ago, I read Jason Zweig's book, Your Money uh, and Your Brain. So your book used uh, both a lot of the, you know, a lot of the behavioral psychology, but you also went to some of the physiology in, in the book, and you state that money produces the same dopamine shot to the brain that other stimulus, like drugs or, or, or so forth. Can you explain what you mean by that? 
Yeah. So the, the reason that drugs are called dope is because they give a hit of dopamine. And there's a Harvard study that I can't, I can't remember if I cited it in this book or the book previous, but I know there's a Harvard study that looked at uh, brain patterns of people engaged in different behaviors. So, you know, they would uh, have people do, you know, X, Y, Z different, different things. And then they would hook them up to an fMRI and, and watch what their brain did and how it lit up. And the closest hit that they could find, the closest pairing they could find with an, with an activity like day trading or frequent trading was actually doing drugs. And so some of the same, uh, some of the same mechanisms are at play. And an interesting thing about your brain and your body is that, you know, some of the same channels are used for very different things. You know, if you think, um, if you think that your, uh, you know, your girlfriend is cheating on you and your heart races and your eyes dilate and you, you know, breathe, you know, you breathe, uh, with a shortness of breath. That's the same set of reactions that you would get if you were chased by a bear, say, mm. right. Mm -hmm. So you see this again and again, that we are very poor at distinguishing actual physical existential harm from more sort of psychological harm uh, because so many of these pathways are the, are the very same. Yeah, and so when you have uh, stress in the market or a, a bad event, for whatever reason, it can create a reaction, I, I guess. Is that the idea here that yeah, well, and one one more statistic I should bring up <clears throat> is that uh, investors who are under stress, investors who are under duress, tend to lose thirteen percent of their IQ. And so, even if you know the right thing to do at any given moment, you have uh, limited access to that that knowledge at the very moment when you need it most. And so this is why I'm a big proponent of, of folks working with a financial advisor, because even though education is a big, a big piece of it, it tends to have, uh, you, you tend to have least access to it when you need it most. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, that's, that's insightful. I, you know, I call this show the money and meaning show because I was trying to help create some encouragement and some ideas around how to get deeper on what really matters most so that we can help our clients and our listeners get their actions and resources in alignment with, with what really matters. And um, so you write a little bit in the book about this pursuit of more, about how we um, trying to keep up with the Joneses. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about your research uh, as it relates to um, the satisfaction with the pursuit of more? So if you if you go back, we're going to go evolutionary psychology again, you know, many, many, many years ago, it was effectively impossible for humankind to store enough wealth, you know, back when everyone was a subsistence farmer, or everyone was sort of living hand to mouth, there was no way that you could really stockpile enough abundance to be set. Right. And so we have evolved to never be satisfied, to always want more. This is something that psychologists refer to as the hedonic treadmill, which is basically, you know, you keep you keep running on this treadmill, but your satisfaction tends to basically rise as quickly as your income. So if you look back, you know, if, if I look back over my own life, I don't uh, I'm not appreciably happier uh, today. Uh, than I was when I was, say, in college, even though my income has exponentiated because, you know, wherever you go, there you are. 
and our, our preferences tend to rise in line with our income. And so this is why it becomes so important to uh, be, be disciplined about the pursuit of less and, and be disciplined about spending money in ways that are conducive to happiness. And so the research shows there's a couple of ways that we can spend money for, for happiness. Uh, one is to buy time with people that we love, like to go on a vacation or to have a date or an outing with someone that we care about. Uh, another way that, that money buys happiness is by giving it away. Being charitable leads to uh, appreciable uptick in, in happiness. Uh, and then the final way is to sort of buy your way out of doing stuff that you hate. You know, um, I haven't cut my yard in a very, very long time, and I'm quite happy about that. So <laughs> things like, you know, right. things like getting getting help, you know, getting help cleaning the house, mowing the yard, right. whatever, whatever it is that you don't like. That's sort of a third way to buy happiness with money. Uh, everything else, money, money doesn't really buy happiness uh, all that much beyond those three major things. In- interesting. We've, we've had a number of guests that shared a lot of those same right. same themes over the last couple of years. Um, I, I, I like a lot of what you write, too, about how – so we've got these human tendencies that are part of the, part of the makeup. I, I guess there's not much we can do about that. Um, but there are some things in terms of having a rules-based approach. And you talk and write a lot about having a rules-based approach um, to combat some of these tendencies. Right. If, think, if, if we can evolve in a couple – would you say a couple hundred million years <laughs> yeah. to be good investors? Yeah. Uh, what do we do in the meantime? Yeah. 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 So having having a rules based approach is is powerful for a couple of reasons. Uh, so first of all, there's a, a meta analysis that I cite in the book. So a meta analysis being just sort of a study of all the studies, a combo study, if you will, of 200 different studies that compared following simple rules to expert level discretion, like expert level real-time decision-making. And it found that 94% of the time following simple rules um, beat or matched performance of of a high-level expert. Now, if you think about finance, um, finance is sort of necessary, but not important. Like when I think about what it, what it, means to live a meaningful life, you know, uh, money certainly facilitates that it's, it's problematic if you don't have it, but, uh, you know, uh, I'm not going to put my net worth on my, on my gravestone. And so one of the things that's important for me is to sort of automate the, the process of making good investment decisions, work with someone to help you automate that process and then go do, you know, go do more important stuff. That's going to get you a better outcome uh, and a better, uh, better bang for your buck time-wise. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that obviously speaks, um, you know, you're, you're singing from the hymnal that we, that we sing from as well, because um, I, I've become comfortable not knowing a lot of stuff. I, I used to think I had to know a lot more stuff and I would spend a lot of time and energy on things that really didn't, add a ton of value. And that was a little humbling. I mean, I thought it mattered that I went and visited all these, you know, all these active managers and, um, and, and, and did all the research. Um, so I've, I've come to be more comfortable not knowing more and having a rules-based approach, but it's still, it's still really difficult to accept sometimes as, uh, as investors that, um, that you, there's certain things you just can't know. And, you know, on the rules-based approach, I, I, um, it reminds me of, of something I heard um, or read 
um, you know, back uh, in, in, you know, Benjamin Graham's work. I mean, he always talked in the intelligent investor about having a set of rules. And so, again, um, I, I, having a rules-based approach, I think, probably helps with our, our ego and our tendencies to, to get off track. Um, you, you spend a good bit of time on four uh, consistent behavioral risk, and, and, and we certainly don't have time to go through them in the depth that, that you did in the book. I'm, I'm hoping our listeners will, will go get the book because it is really uh, – it ought to be on their bookshelf. Can you just talk briefly about the four consistent behavioral risk that you've identified? Yeah. So one of one of the coolest things, if I if I may, of course, the book is that I took I took 177 behavioral biases, which have been identified by shrinks like me, and <laughs> I I looked at these and I said, look, not not all of these are equally impactful uh, on investment on investor decision making, and many of them load on to sort of a broader meta behavior. And so I looked at that big universe of behaviors and said, well, you know, what's at the essence here? And so the four are emotion, uh, ego, attention, and conservatism. So emotion is just what it sounds like. It's this tendency for us to make uh, emotional rather than rational decisions to let greed and fear and other things influence our decision making. Uh, Ego is this very natural tendency uh, to be overconfident to think that we are smarter than average, uh, better than average, luckier than average, more accurate than average. And this tends to lead us to make poor investment decisions. Uh, Attention is the tendency to confuse things that are um, newsworthy with things that are likely. Um, You know, the best, great, great example here is, you know, I was just in the Cayman Islands. My wife went along on that trip with me. And when we had last gone to Hawaii, I didn't go in the ocean because um, because we watched a show right before we left uh, that was Shark Week, right? It was Discovery Channel Shark Week. <laughs> and, and we get to Hawaii and I'm like, there's no way I'm getting in the water because, you know, we, we had watched this show that said that, you know, three of the top 10 places for shark attacks were in Hawaii. And I was like, well, you, I'm going to hang out here on the beach. And so, you know, <laughs> you know I looked at, I looked at the, the probabilities later and you have about a one in 300 million chance of, of uh, being bit by a shark. Whereas you have about like a one in 20 million chance of your pajamas catching on fire. I mean, you know, it's like, yeah, I was, I was doing all sorts of things every day that were more dangerous than swimming in the ocean. Right. And, and that's that attention. It's like, uh, 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 a sexy narrative, like a high profile narrative makes us think something's more likely than it is or more scary than it is. Right. Uh, and then the final one is conservatism, which is our tendency to confuse things that we know with things that are safe. So this is why people tend to overinvest in their own companies. They tend to overinvest in the, the industry they work in and they tend to overinvest in uh, the, their home country. So ego, conservatism, Attention and emotion. That's right. Yeah, those were the four. Yeah, I, I, I think about that. Um, I think a lot about that attention one a bit because we had we did a show on a book uh, that Hans Rosling wrote uh, before he passed away called Factfulness. I don't know if you're familiar with the book. Um, I am. But but it was a it was a really good book. But it talked a lot about how the world is actually getting better, but you wouldn't know it because it doesn't make news. You know, so it's not. It's not. Uh, it's not as. It's not as prevalent. 
Um, but we are drawn to stories, aren't we? I mean, that's part of the I – th- I think that's maybe part of the problem. We're drawn to the narrative. Is that is that safe to say? Well, y- Yuri Hassan – as, as, as opposed to the probabilities, I'm sorry. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. So Yuri, Yuri Hassan at Princeton did research that found that I'll, this is me being colloquial, but effectively when, when two people are sitting across from each other telling a story or when you hear a story, it's as though you're, you know, my brain is opened up and I put my brain inside of your head. Like that's how direct, you know, that's how direct the, the sync up is when, when two people are engaged in narrative and you look at two people who are sharing statistics with each other <laughs> and your brains look totally different because we're not, you know, we're a storytelling species. We're not a, we're not a probability weighing species in any kind of in any ca- kind of uh, discreet or, or accurate way, so that's exactly right. Gotcha. So how do so how does a how does an investor become a behavioral investor that uh, assesses probabilities in, as opposed to stories? What are some sort of some ways we could be better investors? You know, I I I say there's really three things. Um, and it's three E's. I love, I love a good alliteration. So there's, there's three E's. The first one is education. You know, this is where we listen to podcasts like this. We read books like mine. We, we educate ourselves as to, you know, sort of the fundaments of, of good investing. Uh, the second thing we need is the right environment, which is going to be, you know, a, a well-diversified, reasonably priced, multi-asset class portfolio, right? Just a, a, we need the right environment in which to function. And, you know, importantly, the best portfolio for, for a behavioral investor is not the one that necessarily gets the highest returns. It's the one that gets the highest anxiety adjusted returns, which mm. means the highest returns that you can actually take the ride, right? Stick with because it. There, right. there's all sorts of there's all sorts of great investments that end up being poor investments when people can't take the ride. And then the third E is encouragement. You need just in time advice uh, because all of the research shows that no matter if we know the right thing to do, no matter if we put ourselves in the right environment, there's still going to be times when we're weak. There's still going to be these moments of panic. Um, where we just do the wrong thing and uh, and we need a little help. So those are the those are the three E's. I think. Yeah, education, environment, and encouragement. That's that's helpful. That is really helpful. Um, yeah. So there's there's so much there's so much meat in your book. Um, and like I said, I I really do want to encourage our listeners to to check it out. Um, so what are you working on now? Tell me a little bit about what you're working on or, or how the audience can find you or, or read your material. What's the best way for them to to stay on top of what you're sharing to the community? Yeah, well, I hope folks will check out the Laws of Wealth and the Behavioral Investor. Um, I am super active on LinkedIn, so Daniel Crosby, PhD, and I'm very active on Twitter as well, at Daniel Crosby. So always happy to meet some new smiling faces uh, on those channels. Well, that's that's awesome. Well, you you're you're great to give us some time today. I know you have a really busy speaking schedule because I, I I do follow you on on Twitter and other places. Uh, any, anything else? Any final comments that you would like to offer to an audience that is looking for um, confidence in building strategies that can give them a path to uh, pursue you know meaning and purpose. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I'd, I'd refer back to uh, two things. I'd refer back to my previous comment that that 
money is sort of necessary but not sufficient to to live a good life. So learn uh, just as much as you need to to get your financial house in order, but no more. And then go uh, go work on things that matter more than than dollars and cents. And then the second thing I'd say is the the greatest source of your lifetime uh, the the greatest source of your lifetime wealth is is you and your knowledge. And so when you understand that, it becomes less about trying to squeeze another percentage out of your investment portfolio. And it becomes more about taking care of your health. Uh, it becomes more about educating yourself uh, to your to your uh, maximal potential so you can get a better job and get a promotion. Uh, so work on you first and the rest will come. Very cool. That's wow. terrific. That's Mike, wonderful, Daniel. Mike, anything, final comments you want to share, Mike? No, I would just say uh, keep going, Daniel. I, you know, you didn't mention what's what's next for you. You just shared that you're active in these areas. But, man, we, uh, we, we so value the research and perspective that you share. And so I just encourage you to keep going. And I just thanks, thank you for the hard work and the perspective uh, that, that, uh, that you've got. So... Yep. Yeah. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks for being with us. Thanks. Thanks, guys. All right. So there you have it, folks. Another episode of the Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier. I hope you found it as helpful as I did. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to check out past episodes or check out uh, Jeff's blog at tandemgrowth.com forward slash perspectives. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier a show dedicated to help you gain the confidence and freedom to lead a life of personal significance and help you get your actions and resources in alignment with what matters most. We would love to hear from you. If you have any questions for Jeff or Mike or comments on the show, feel free to reach out to us at tandemgrowth.com or you can find us on the web at www.tandemgrowth.com. Jeff Bernier is the President and Chief Investment Officer at Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. This show is a production of Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC. All information discussed is general in nature, is provided for informational purposes only, and should not be construed as specific financial, legal, or tax advice. Listeners should consult an attorney or tax professional regarding their specific legal or tax situation. Listeners should not rely on the content of this podcast as the basis for any investment decisions. A professional advisor should be consulted and or independent due diligence should be conducted before implementing anything discussed in this show. While information presented is believed to be factual and up-to-date, Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC, does not guarantee its accuracy and it should not be regarded as a complete analysis of the subjects discussed. Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC, does not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy, timeliness, suitability, completeness, or relevance of any information prepared by any unaffiliated third party, such as guests on the podcast, and takes no responsibility for the same.